How did East Asia overtake South Asia? Circa 1900, women in East Asia and South Asia were equally oppressed and unfree. But over the course of the 20th century, gender equality in East Asia advanced far ahead of South Asia. What accounts for this divergence? The first order difference between East and South Asia is economic development. East Asian women left the countryside in droves to meet the huge demand for labour in the cities. And they escaped the patriarchal constraints of the village. They earned their own money, supported their parents and gained independence. By contrast, the slower pace of structural transformation has kept South Asia a more agrarian and less urban society, with fewer opportunities for women to liberate themselves. But growth is not the whole story. Cultural and religious norms have persisted in spite of growth. Even though women in South Asia are having fewer children and are better educated than ever before, they seldom work outside the family or collectively challenge their subordination. By global standards, gender equality indicators in South Asia remain low relative to regions at similar levels of development or even compared with many poorer countries. Now let me set out the evidence for four key claims. First, East and South Asian women were once equally unfree and oppressed. Both societies were organised around tightly policing women's sexuality. But every patrilineal society also faced a trade-off between honour, achieved by restricting women's freedoms and income, and by exploiting their labour. South Asia had a stronger preference for female seclusion, and East Asia a stronger preference for female exploitation. This implies South Asia needed more income to be compensated for the loss of honour than East Asia. In patriarchal societies, industrialization and structural transformation are necessary preconditions for the emancipation of women. By seizing economic opportunities outside the family, women can gain economic autonomy, broaden their horizons and collectively resist discrimination. But industrialization is not sufficient. In societies with strong preference for female seclusion, women may forfeit new economic opportunities so as to preserve family honour. Hence, inequalities persist alongside growth. Now, let me come to my crucial first premise. East and South Asian women were once equally unfree and oppressed. So both East and South Asian societies were patrilineal and patrilocal. Patrilineal societies exhibit a powerful son preference. Families invest in boys as much as possible, since they are future providers, continuing the family line, and performers of funeral rites. But daughters were perceived as less valuable, because they would soon marry into another family. This difference in treatment is reflected in sex ratios, mortality, education, and stunting. When Chinese families were plagued by cholera or famine, they drowned girls at birth or sold them as slaves. Elite boys were educated in the classics, but girls however wealthy, were kept ignorant. Chinese men were over four times as likely to be literate in the 1880s. In India, before 1900, female literacy was almost zero. As they said in Telugu, bringing up a daughter is like watering a plant in another's courtyard. Girls grew up learning. They were less valued 
and more constrained. Arrange marriages with a norm. Obedience was stipulated in Confucianism and the Manu Smriti. Let me quote, and you may know this one. The father guards her during virginity. The husband guards her during her youth. The sons guard her in old age. The woman is never fit for independence. Likewise, the Chinese motto was men decide, women follow. If visitors called and only a woman was present, she might answer, no one is home. Korean women had no independent identity. They were merely appendages to the patrilineal clan. And let me quote from Wong Su Ling's autobiography. There were young men with their lives ahead of them, the world at their feet, their hopes high. But a girl belonged to a man. Her only future was to marry, to be true to her husband and give him children. Patrilocality meant that a bride relocated to live with her husband's family. Men lived on family land supported by their family and village. Women did gain status once they'd produced sons for the lineage, but a young bride was an outsider with no claim to resources. Moreover, she was closely policed by her husband's kin, so had very little autonomy. As Tang lamented, let me quote, The lands in front of me are what I'm not qualified to partake of. The fir trees behind me are what I have no share in. The high buildings and huge houses I see I am not supposed to inherit. The fancy street I step on is only what I borrow for walking. Now, the restriction of women's freedoms in traditional patrilineal societies emerged from a coordination failure, which I call the patrilineal trap. In patrilineal societies, the function of a woman is to produce sons who would perpetuate their husband's lineage. This generates a profound anxiety about women's sexuality. Since the paternity of sons must never be in doubt, the slightest hint of sexual activity by a young woman outside the confines of marriage constituted a threat to the social order. The entire sense of honour and shame in a patrilineal society is bound up in the sexual propriety of women. Therefore, the whole society is organised around removing any and all doubt about the virginity of unmarried women and the fidelity of wives. Women were tightly policed and their movements restricted. If a woman was seen moving about too freely, the ensuing gossip would soon circulate through close-knit rural communities, ruin her marriage prospects, and disgrace her family. In South India, such worries were likened to a boil on the chest. Now, despite the grinding poverty of village life, women earning wages away from home was rare. Few families wanted to stick their neck out and be the first to send their daughter away because she might be perceived by the village as promiscuous. Let me quote. At that time, it wasn't as open as now, with so many people going out. People seeing a girl leaving home would think, who knows what she's doing? Could she be doing other things, going off with men? Chastity is extremely important to Chinese people. Other girls growing up in the village could be observed by everyone. But if you ran so far away, no one could see what you were doing. So later, you wouldn't be able to find a husband. Better families, those with promise, wouldn't let you marry their son, end quote. So the unwillingness of families to deviate from this norm unilaterally created a negative feedback loop in which wage labour remained exceptional for women. So you may be wondering, what caused families to put women to work in a society where secluding women was the idea? 
So in abstraction, we might theorise that each peasant family faced a trade-off between honour and income. Now, they might be tempted to supplement their meagre earnings by putting their daughter to work outside the village, maybe in the city. But this incentive had to be weighed against the potential loss of honour and the severity of social sanctions. So the social ideal was to keep women at home. But the more that women were secluded, the less their labour power could be harnessed for the benefit of the household. So generally, the poorest families were the most likely to send their daughters and wives away to work. Yet... Once family circumstances improved, the women would be brought back home to regain social respectability. Meanwhile, the wealthiest families displayed their affluence by keeping women in seclusion and and foregoing the financial benefits of female work. Upwardly mobile families sought status by following suit. Elite Korean women, Yangban, uh, were veiled. Now, there are analogues in the history of North America and Western Europe, of course. Before the mid-20th century, women tended to work less outside the home when their husbands' incomes were rising. The negative income effect, that is, that household income and women's employment were inversely related, testified to the ideal that men work outside and women work at home. Now, let me now present evidence that South Asia and East Asia, on average, seem to make different trade-offs between honour and income. So the size of the market reward from putting women to work needed to be larger in South Asia than in East Asia to compensate for that loss of honour. So East Asian families were slightly less obsessed with policing women's movements than South Asian families. But this small difference can make a big difference when economic conditions changed. In China, rural girls had their feet bound by families undertaking textile handwork in order to keep them working intensely at the spinning wheel. There was no compunction about treating them like mules or chattel slaves. But when railways brought cheaper industrial goods, families ceased to bind their daughters' feet so they could move to new productive activities. Even before Maoism, which greatly increased female labour force participation, women's economic contributions were similar to men's in the highly commercialised Lower Yangtze region. Now, women in East Asia were not, and I emphasise not, treated better than in South Asia. But they were seen as slightly more of an economic resource. And this meant that female employment was more responsive to economic conditions in East Asia. Now, South Asia has seen quite a different pattern. For example, even as commerce flourished in the early 1900s, many castes in Uttar Pradesh restricted female mobility because they prioritised honour over earnings. Ahir men prevented women from selling milk. Urban chamas, that is Dalits, put their wives in seclusion. When the mills opened up in Calcutta, Bengali women worked from home at a third of the factory wage. Publishers at the Aligarh Institute Gazette urged their readers to restrict female mobility. Let me quote. We wish our women to be educated. But if education means letting them loose to mix with whom they please, if it means that as they rise in learning they shall deteriorate in morals, if it means the loss of our honour and the invasion of the privacy of our homes, we prefer our honour to the education of our women, even though we may be called obstinate and prejudiced and wrong-headed. 
So let me come now to a new point, the age of marriage. The age of marriage was always much earlier in South Asia than East Asia. In 1931, Indian girls' mean age of marriage was just 13. That's the mean. Chinese girls, meanwhile, marry at 18. And Japanese girls, even later still. Prepubescent marriages indicate a strong preference to control female sexuality. Daughters were married off before they were physically able to reproduce for the wrong lineage. Thereafter, she would be guarded by his kin. Now, East Asia shares many characteristics with South Asia. Powerful patrilineal, patrilocal clans, policed female reproduction. But the age of marriage was always higher. And there was always much more inter-ethnic marriage. 19th century Han, often wed non-Han. These two facts may be related. If East Asians were less discriminatory about grooms, they may have had less compunction to lock them in to prepubescent marriages. Now, South Asians guarded female reproduction more zealously. This was manifest in child marriage, perder and strict surveillance. And all of these were less responsive to economic conditions. When industry moved from home production to factories, women stayed at home. Female workers in industry fell from 17 to 11% between 1901 and 1921 and then remained low. Families forfeited earnings to maintain respect. Now, you may be wondering, why did South Asian girls marry so early? I think there are maybe five reasons. Let me go through them. One, foreign invaders repeatedly attacked Northwest India, raiding households, raping women and selling them as sex slaves. And that went on for 800 years or so. Secondly, those Muslim rulers practiced perdom. And upwardly mobile families followed suit to gain prestige. Women withdrew from public life. They worked hard for their families, of course, but seldom mixing with outsiders. And once seclusion became normative across North India, men preserved their honour by policing female kin, for rumours of misconduct would soil the family name. Thirdly, Hindus sought to protect their women from outsiders. Religious diversity may help explain why Purda persisted long after the invasions. In the early 1900s in Uttar Pradesh, Hindu publicists broadcast unsubstantiated allegations of rape, aggression, abductions, conversions uh, and forced marriages by Muslim men. Fourthly, pastoralism. Historically pervasive across northwest India, but uncommon in East Asia. And if men could not observe women's whereabouts while taking the animals to pasture, they may worry about paternity and so try to control female sexuality. So across the world, women whose ancestors subsisted on pastoralism tend to be closely guarded with little freedom of movement. Now let me come to my fifth reason, caste. If marrying within one's own jati is socially and economically imperative, there is a strong rationale for child marriage. It ensures the girl cannot possibly reproduce for any other lineage. Now, when Indians needed help, support or access to raw materials, markets, loans or jobs, they often turned to their trusted caste networks. Insiders derived great benefit from their networks and strengthened trust through wedlock within their own jetty. Assemblies of older men built trust in caste networks by overseeing women's sexuality and reproduction. If a woman rejected her arranged marriage, the caste man charge might severely fine her family or even outcast them entirely, prohibiting future marriages, cutting off their social networks and sources of mutual insurance. An entire lineage could be alienated and expelled from the village 
because of one daughter's misdeeds. Upper class derived the greatest benefit from the caste system and were the strongest proponents of prepubescent marriages, prohibiting polluting sexual access. East Asia overcame the patrilineal trap because it industrialised rapidly and families were willing to exploit female labour in response to new economic opportunities. In the long run, East Asian women gained autonomy and status by moving to cities and working in factories, freeing themselves from the control of their families, earning their own money and building social support networks. Industrialization was necessary, but not sufficient. Female emancipation required the prior willingness of families to treat women as an economic resource. So industrialization was a crucial prerequisite to female emancipation because it entail, entails urbanization and structural transformation, the rapid shrinking of the agricultural sector. The end of agriculture as a major employer disrupts and ultimately ends the rural way of life for most people, but especially women. The demand for labour by manufacturing and services must be great enough to absorb that rural labour and make it attractive enough for families to ship off their daughters as well as their sons to work. Now, East Asia witnessed the classic case of balanced growth, rapid productivity growth in agriculture, which released labour into other sectors, combined with rapid growth in manufacturing services, which absorbed the rural labour. Thanks to the late age of marriage for girls, there was an abundant supply of young, unmarried, educated women who could be hired by the thousands simultaneously. And the demand for labour was so strong that the opportunity cost of keeping your daughter at home increased for entire villages. This synchronised effect helped overcome the coordination problem of individual, individual families being unwilling to stick their neck out by putting their girls to work in the factories. When all families wanted to do it, there could be no social condemnation. So... East Asian states realised that women were cheap but efficient workers. The Meiji government called on girls for real for the nation. Emulating the Japanese experience, factory managers in South Korea, Taiwan and China sought to capitalise on low-cost, educated, disposable labour in food processing, textiles, electronics and subsequent services. Norms about women's work shifted. With the economic rewards high and the fear of condemnation removed, Factory work soon became a normal, predictable and pervasive stage in the life cycle of East Asian women. Let me quote from a Taiwanese woman in the 1970s. Today, factories are everywhere and there are so many factory women that working in a factory has become very commonplace and quite acceptable for a woman. By the 1990s in China, not long after liberalisation started, it soon became expected for women to work in factories. Young women went because their friends had done so. And neighbours also started asking why remaining girls had not migrated from work. But industrialisation did not magically emancipate women. Rather, it created the social context in which women could pursue their own emancipation. Daughters gained face, that is, respect and social standing by remitting earnings, supporting their families and showing filial piety, just like sons. 
By migrating to cities, women made friends, bemoaned unfair practices, and discovered more egalitarian alternatives. Emboldened by peer support, women came to expect and demand better in dating, domesticity, and industrial relations alike. Mingling freely in cities, young adults increasingly dated before marriage, chose their own partners, then established their own households. They liberated themselves from parental control. Democratization emboldened Korean and Taiwanese feminists. They became increasingly organized, outspoken and assertive. Women rallied against sexual harassment and secured accountability. Powerful men in South Korea were imprisoned for abuse, discussed in a previous podcast and blog of mine. Now, huge inequalities persist. In terms of pay, property and political representation. But... East Asia is becoming more gender equal. The same cannot be said for South Asia. So why, why is South Asia still in the patrilineal trap? I think there are four reasons. First, there has been much less industrialization than in East Asia. Since India, Pakistan and Bangladesh still remain 63-65% rural, traditional agrarian institutions are much more persistent. In South Asia. Villagers continue to rely on kinship and caste networks for survival, and women remain subject to patriarchal constraints. Female seclusion remains the social ideal, reducing the supply of female labour. Women in South Asia have been less responsive to labour demand, despite falling fertility and rising female education. Elsewhere in the world, these changes are normally associated with female labour force participation. Not so in South Asia. At the same time, industrialization in South Asia has been less labor-intensive, i.e. industry has absorbed less labor than in East Asia. The labor shortages which caused employers in the Asian tiger countries to resort to hiring women never really materialized in South Asia. Men are first in line for jobs, and employers need not hire women. So structural transformation in South Asia has been kind of perverse. Approximately 80% of the urban workers in India are engaged in informal self-employment or micro-enterprises. To mitigate precarity, urban workers rely on their cost networks, thereby perpetuating rural patriarchy in the cities. Now, today in South Asia, so let me expand on those points. Today in South Asia, female seclusion continues to be idealised. Now, this is partly because... South Asians continue to be embedded in caste and kin networks, which are kept alive by the slow pace and unique nature of economic development in South Asia. Caste and kin networks are crucial for everything from jobs to loans to mutual insurance where jobs are scarce. Retail banking is underdeveloped and there's very little welfare provision by the state. Yet membership in those networks requires social respectability, primarily about women's honour. Therefore, Caste panchayats strictly enforce the surveillance of women and within jati marriages. Outmarriage is still only 5% in rural India. And that's an eloquent indicator of the persistence of traditional networks. Therefore, in rural Bangladesh, Pakistan and North India, female employment responds weakly to urban demand for labour. Women tend to stay close to their homes, only interacting with kin, and often withdraw from the labour market altogether. A family whose women folk work outside their home lose status and harm the marital prospects of their daughters. So even if pucker roads and buses improve access to jobs, 
women tend to forego earnings if their communities practice purdah. Pakistan's garment factories are always seeking docile female workers, but cannot entice women from their homes. So men go out into the world while women are closely guarded. Surveillance is so strong in rural behalf that young women reportedly relish open defecation as their only opportunity to get some fresh air, escape their in-laws and speak to their friends in privacy. In rural Odisha and Uttar Pradesh, women, and especially the wealthiest, have very few friends. This limits their opportunities to share ideas, critique unfairness, and build alliances outside the family. Meanwhile, the poorest, the lower caste women have little to lose and regularly sacrifice social respect for the sake of bare-bones survival. In rural Uttar Pradesh, women only turn to wage work under the most desperate conditions. Yet once family finances improve, women withdraw from the workforce and buy some respectability again. Prosperity actually seems to reinforce the patrilineal trap in villages. So women's reluctance to enter the labour market is enforced by male backlash. In North, but not South India, I add, women with outside earnings are more likely to experience domestic violence. Likewise, Bangladeshi women who join savings groups or work in garment factories are at heightened risk of domestic violence. To preserve their dominance, Bangladeshi men usually try to control women's earnings. So many women may be incentivized to stay home when modest earnings outside the home may be seized by men and even instigate intimate partner violence. Now let me turn to this next point about structural transformation and urban informality. So India's industrial sector has always been much smaller in the aggregate and less labour intensive than East Asia's. This has suppressed demand for low-skilled labour with numerous consequences for female employment amongst the poor. Dalit women have had fewer opportunities to escape the oppression of the village and find work in the city. Gender wage gaps are largest amongst lower caste, so the poorest, least educated women have been the major victims of falling female employment. Even more important than the size of industry is the unique pattern of South Asia's industrial transformation. The great majority of jobs are in the informal sector, and that has adverse consequences for women. Most agricultural workers do not have stable, salaried employment. Instead, they're employed in micro-enterprises, ranging from one-man entrepreneurial operations to petty family firms with a handful of workers. Such work is precarious. Small-scale self-employment is without job security or regular paycheck, let alone insurance against unemployment and workplace injury. Those seeking jobs in micro-enterprises must get lucky waiting at the labour tube or just to be hired for the day or they may be rounded up by harsh exploitative middlemen maybe a fortunate one has a prosperous uncle he could work for so the precarity of informal employment creates powerful incentives for city dwellers to rely heavily on their jatty networks and live close to their kin. India's cities, especially the smaller ones, are rife with caste-based residential segregation. Segregation by caste is actually more widespread than segregation by socioeconomic status. Ambedkar famously decried the village, and you may know this quote, as a sink of localism, a den of ignorance, narrow-mindedness and communism. Now, thanks to South Asia's pattern of economic development, those same institutions have been transported to the city. 
protective labour legislation may partly explain why Indian enterprises remain small and why most jobs are still informal. If firms do not employ more than 10 workers, they can circumvent labour laws. They need not offer paid leave, pensions or health insurance. They can terminate workers with no notice or severance pay. If firms employ less than seven workers, they can also escape India's Trade Union Act and workers cannot form a union. The cost of all that regulation is compounded by labour inspectors' extortionary corruption. Establishments that employ more than nine workers pay an additional 35% of the wage with every additional worker. Moreover, employers frequently subcontract work to home-based workers in order to artificially reduce the size of their firm and circumvent labour regulations. So that kind of informal gig work keeps many women trapped by family surveillance and control. So the patrilineal trap persists. Traditional rural patriarchy in South Asia, instead of being undermined, as happened in East Asia, has actually been reinforced by economic development. As men go out into the world, run family businesses, migrate to new economic opportunities, inherit assets, resolve community problems, mobilise political networks and make the laws of the land. Elsewhere in the world, female politicians inspire other women to become politically active and stand for office. By seeing women demonstrating their equal competence in socially valued domains, societies become more supportive of gender equality. But in India, a woman's electoral victory has no demonstration effect. Other parties are no more likely to field women candidates and women in nearby constituencies are no more likely to stand for office. Half of the seats of Bihar's village councils were reserved for women in 2006 and 2011, but husbands tended to contest the elections. Given prescriptions on female mobility, Indian women struggle to be electorally competitive. They have little opportunity to congregate with peers, amass knowledge of the wider world, forge alliances with unknown men and accrue campaign funds. So South Asia's few women leaders tend to be especially privileged, i.e. wealthy, upper caste, or members of family dynasties with guaranteed name recognition. For ordinary women, politics is out of reach. But despite the persistence of cultural traditions in South Asia, the patrilineal trap is not insurmountable. The diversity of historical experience within South Asia suggests there are many ways to tip the income honour trade-off in positive directions. When factories opened up in Bangladesh, families increasingly invested in their daughters' education, delayed marriage and supported their employment. Female employment continues to rise in Bangladesh, especially among graduates. Through formal employment, women accrue self-esteem and social respect. Bangladeshi women's relatively strong response to economic opportunities may stem from lower levels of endogamy and thus slightly weaker policing compared to Bihar and West Bengal. Indian women have also seized economic opportunities when they feel safe. If a woman can work for a female-owned enterprise, she will readily accept a lower wage. Free from lecherous outsiders, her family no longer need worry about a loss of honour. For similar reasons, women are much more likely to work in neighbourhoods where they do not fear rape. Female graduates are pursuing careers in IT, engineering, telecoms, finance and hospitality. Emboldened by peers, they're capitalising on rising demand for skilled labour in Chennai, Bengaluru and Hyderabad. Many female graduates want to work. 
in cities, upper class women are actually more likely to participate in the labour force since they can find respectable work alongside upper class men. They are exercising far greater autonomy than their grandmothers, gathering as friends and collectively castigating sexism. So traditional institutions are clearly not insurmountable and they're likely to weaken with structural transformation. In large, thriving southern cities, there is less untouchability, more social mobility and declining caste segregation. This bodes well for gender equality. Now, let me summarise the Asian divergence. In 1900, East and South Asian women were under the control of patrilineal, patrilocal clans. Each family restricted female mobility as they did not want their daughters to be seen as disreputable. East Asia overcame the patrilineal trap because it industrialised rapidly and families were willing to exploit female labour in response to new economic opportunities. By migrating to cities and working outside the family, women accrued face, freedom and friendships. South Asia's slower and weaker structural transformation has not changed the income on a trade-off as much. The economic returns to female employment remain low while their costs to honour are high. Given the dearth of good jobs, people remain economically dependent on kin. This perpetuates jati endogamy, social surveillance and burden. Hence, female employment only weakly responds to economic growth. Women remain secluded and separated, seldom challenging their patriarchal providers. Many young, educated, urban and especially South Indian women want to break out of the patrilineal trap. Safety and structural transformation would help them realise their ambitions. Well, thank you very much for listening to The Asian Divergence, how East Asia overtook South Asia in gender equality. I'm Dr Alice Evans. This is Rocking Your Prize. Thank you very much for listening. Take care.